So today we are in John 3, uh, one of the most, as I say, familiar passages that there are in the Bible, one of the, the, the best known for a couple of reasons. You have a couple of just statements in here, a couple of verses that make it so well known. You have that phrase, born again, but you also have John 3, 16 in here. And so this is one of those ones where we come to, and it is so familiar to us. And I'm praying that that would not lead us to complacency today. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last 48 hours, you will know and you have been aware that yesterday was the funeral of the Duke of Edinburgh. And there was one particular scene, one particular image that was absolutely heartbreaking. I I shared it last night on Facebook and it is heartbreaking. And it is the image of the Queen sitting alone on her own in a church pew, feeling the weight of death. Feeling the weight of death. It was heartbreaking on so many levels. Heartbreaking that she was alone. Heartbreaking that she was there. But at the most basic level, it was heartbreaking because here was a woman who had been married to a man for 73 years. And that relationship had been torn apart at that moment. 73 years, literal, a literal lifetime, three score years and 10 plus three, a literal lifetime together. And there she was, mourning, feeling the weight of death. The second reason it's heartbreaking is, is this. Everyone, bar no one, faces death. Everyone, bar no one, faces death. The mortality rate is as it always has been, one for one. One for one. Every human being that is born will die. It is the only certainty in life. And it matters not how wealthy we are. It matters not how much power we have. It matters not how much prestige we have or position we have. It matters none of that. We will die. John, it's great to have you back. Flip the coin. It's the same. It doesn't matter how poor we are or how little power we are or how little prestige we have or any of those things, how destitute we are, we will die. The mortality rate is the same, one for one. One for one. And over the next few weeks, as we proceed through John's gospel, we will come to these encounters that Jesus has with people who face this reality. Today, we we come in contact with the first one of those, Nicodemus, educated, wealthy, uh, has position and power and prestige. Next week, we'll come to the woman at the well who is destitute, who is religiously bankrupt, who has nothing to offer. And they both face the same thing. They both face the same uh, consequences of life, which is death. And my hope is, as we, as we meet these characters that Jesus comes in contact with, my hope is this, that we will see how glorious Jesus is. That we will see the, how, how glorious the offer of the gospel is, how compassionate Jesus is, and how amazing the offer to everyone who will believe 
is the offer of salvation. Today we come up to our first encounter, and that is Nicodemus. For note-takers among you, I've, I've separated this out into four sections. First, we have the man, Nicodemus. Then we have the message that Jesus gives him. Then we have the way, and then we have the why. So let's begin with the man, the man, Nicodemus. Nicodemus of Jerusalem, who came to Jesus by night. I don't know about you, but that shows my age probably. And I've asked a few people this week. But when I hear the name Nicodemus, when you hear the name Nicodemus, what comes to mind? <laughs> this is dangerous. <laughs> when I hear the name Nicodemus, I'm showing my age. I think of Shacodemus and Pliers. Does anybody recognize that? No. Shacodemus, tease, mid-tease, mid-tease. No, nobody? Right, okay. Uh, tangent. Nicodemus of Jerusalem, who comes to Jesus by night, now, commentators love that. Preachers love that. He comes by night. Why does he come by night? Oh, I know. He comes by night because he doesn't want to be seen by everybody else because he's a religious leader and Jesus is this rebel uh, and, and he comes to Jesus by night not to be seen. We don't know that. Could have been handy. He could have been just finished work and he came to Jesus. We don't know that. Some commentators think that the, the night that John portrays, he comes to Jesus by night. The night is to represent the darkness of Nicodemus' soul and the, the fact that he was in a dark spot. We don't know that. But commentators and, and preachers love these things because it preaches well when we actually don't know these things. We don't know why he came to Jesus by night. But he comes by night. And we know that Nicodemus, there is a transformation that happens in Nicodemus' life. We don't see it here in John 3, but we see it throughout the rest of John. And it comes to a culmination where him and Gamaliel place Jesus in the tomb. So we know there's a point somewhere along the line where he, something clicks. We'll see that that is that he is born again. But he was, in his day, Nicodemus of Jerusalem, in his day, was one of, if not the most respected teacher in Israel. You see the way Jesus calls him that. He says, he's not just a teacher in Israel, but the teacher of Israel. He's a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. And he belongs to this particular group of people called the Sanhedrin. That is the Jewish ruling council. And that speaks volumes of the way that this man was viewed. He was viewed with respect. He was viewed with honor. He was viewed with dignity. He's not one of these antagonistic Pharisees who seem to be getting in Jesus' face all the time. No, he's not one of those. He, he, he seems to be admired, respected, honored. He's an outstanding teacher of God's word. Scrupulous in his expounding of the scriptures. And if you have been in Jerusalem, if you had, you, you get these scenes in Scripture and, and certain feasts, Passover, Pentecost, where, where Jerusalem, the, the population of Jerusalem was, was thought to have swelled maybe to three or four times the size of the normal population. And so everybody would have been there. And, and, and you can imagine the scene if you'd have been walking down the street and you're near the temple or near the temple precinct and, and Nicodemus walks past, you'd have been like, that's your man. You know, that's him. That's Nicodemus. Unreal. You ever hear him speak? Class. He's fantastic. That's Nicodemus. Why do we do that, by the way? You ever be at a Christian conference or something and the main speaker goes past you, but that's just him. It's him. See, there is him there. Human being, like everybody else. But 
This is all that's him. That's what it would have been like for Nicodemus. He was the man. He comes to Jesus, who, as far as we are aware, let's just be honest, was unschooled. The son of a carpenter. And Nicodemus comes to this son of a carpenter, unschooled, and says, Rabbi, teacher. So something's went down. So he's heard something. He saw something that has made him think that this Jesus is a teacher of some sorts. This is the ye teacher of Israel, comes to Jesus, shows respect, says, Rabbi. Perhaps he's witnessed some of the miracles. Perhaps he's heard about the miracles. Possibly. But here we have Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, has intellect, has power, has position, has authority, has wealth, because we know of his name, Nicodemus. There's Greek background there somewhere, and so it's presumed that he is wealthy as well. He has everything that you would think. (laughs) He has everything that you would think would make a great church person. And Jesus says this, he is not in the kingdom of God. He is not in the kingdom of God. He is outside the kingdom. Now, if that doesn't shock you or jolt you in some way, you are not reading the same passage that I am reading. It is shocking because here is the most respected teacher in Israel and he is outside of the kingdom of God. The best communicator of the scriptures. And I make the analogy, and you'll understand, I'm not saying that these guys are not part of the kingdom. They are. But in modern day churchy world, that would be like us saying, listen, Matt Chandler, John Piper, Francis Chan, one of those types of communicators, Bible knowledge, all that jazz, not part of the kingdom. That's the shock. Jesus says, you're not part of the kingdom. He could talk about it. He could preach about it. He could expound it. But he's not in the kingdom. And so obviously that raises questions for us. It obviously raises the question that if someone can be educated, be theologically sound, can have power, prestige, position, all these things, not be part of the kingdom, could that be us? Could that be me? Could that be you? Here's a man with all the theological knowledge under the sun, and he is not part of the kingdom. So that's where we start. We start with the man, Nicodemus. That's who he is. Then we get the message. So we have a picture of who this guy is. He's respected. He's well-known. He's wealthy. He comes to Jesus. And he says, I come to you because I, I see the signs that you're doing. Let me just read this again. Now there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you're a teacher who comes from God because no one can do the signs without God unless God is with him. Now, 
That looks like respect. You'd agree, yeah? It, it looks like respect. It looks like Nicodemus is coming to Jesus and giving him respect. Now, what does Jesus do? What's Jesus' response? Well, gee, thanks, Nicodemus. Thank you so much, teacher of Israel. I am glad that you have noticed the signs that I am doing. And I am honored that you have noticed. Is that what Jesus does? Mm-mm. Who says anything about being subtle when it comes to sharing the gospel? Jesus goes straight for the jugular. The teacher of Israel comes to Jesus, says, Rabbi, I see you're doing some cool signs. Jesus goes, do you know what? You must be born again. Sorry, it's just one of those instances where I have to say this. There isn't much relationship building went on before this. Let's journey with him for a while, and then we can share the gospel. No. Sometimes he does that, sometimes he doesn't. This is one of those times where he doesn't. Straight in. You must be born again. He goes straight to the new birth. Why does he do that? Why does he go straight to the new birth with Nicodemus? Is it because he's a Pharisee and he knows he comes from this particular group of people and he knows that he... No, he goes straight to the new birth because he's a human being. And Jesus knows that this is a fallen human being who needs rebirth from above. That's why he goes there. He knows that this is the most loving thing that he could say to Nicodemus in this moment. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand that he can't intellectually assent to it. And you see, here's why. Belonging to the kingdom is not a matter of intellectual qualification, but it is a matter of spiritual rebirth. Not a matter of intellectual qualification, it is a matter of spiritual birth. And I've been pouring over these words this last couple of weeks, that, that, and you can see it here. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind. Blind. But now I see. You see, that was my testimony for 20 years before I came to know Jesus. It was your testimony if it was before you came to know Jesus. You weren't good and Jesus made you a little bit better. You were dead and Jesus made you alive. You were blind and Jesus made you see. That's our testimony. Nicodemus doesn't get it. Because you cannot see spiritual realities unless... You are born again. Born again. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you'll never understand this unless the Spirit opens your eyes to see what's going on here. Nicodemus, I don't get it. I don't understand. Commentators think that John is having a bit of fun here with Nicodemus in the fact that he later knows that Nicodemus will come to know Jesus. And as if Jesus is saying these things, Nicodemus is replying, I don't get it. Uh, and Jesus is sitting there nodding, saying, yeah, I know you don't get it. You will, though. I know you don't get it now, but you will. 
The point of the story is this. The point of the Nicodemus story is this, and it goes from the greater to the lesser. If this is true for Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, who has all this theological knowledge and all this power and position and and wealth and prestige, surely if it's true for him, it is true for everybody else. And it's true for you and it's true for me. If Nicodemus had to be born again, then we have to be born again. And unless we experience spiritual rebirth, we will never see the kingdom. We will never see the kingdom. That's the message. The man is Nicodemus, all the things that he has. The message is you must be born again. You must be born from above. Here's the way. So we meet the man, fairly simple. We know who he is. We get the message. It's simple as well. But look at the way. How does this happen? What is it that Jesus is speaking about that Nicodemus just doesn't understand? Cannot understand. Well, what he's speaking about is a work that God does in a supernatural way. Literally, if you've got a study Bible, go home and your study Bible will say in the margin or wherever, when it says you must be born again, it will say must be born from above. God must work in a supernatural way to break through, penetrate someone's heart and lead them to Jesus. That's how it happens. Now, I don't know about you, but but even that in itself is a humbling thing. When we see the reality of that, are we not humbled by the fact that we can't do anything to save ourselves? Nothing. Literally, this means born from above. Something supernatural has to come down. There's no earning. There's no just mustering up the effort to be better. There's none of that. And you see, this is where Christianity is different from every other world religion. Every other world religion will tell you, be better. Tip the scales in your favor. Do enough good work and you will be okay, or the God that you you serve may or may not let you in. Christianity is not that message. Christianity is you're dead. And by the grace of God alone, you are made spiritually alive. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. That's what makes it different. Jesus is saying here, it's not in you, Nicodemus. It's from outside you. And there's, there's, a, there's a part of this, the text here, verse 12 through to 14, where he makes an example from the Old Testament to to make a point. Let me read it to you. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? Why is he saying this to Nicodemus? There's an incident in the Old Testament where Moses is told by God, get a serpent on a stick, lift it up, and when all the people look to that serpent, they will be healed. Does that remind you of anything? 
Does that point away from itself forward to anything? Think of then the Son of Man, Jesus, lifted up on a stick. And when people look away from themselves to Him, they are healed. They are healed. It is outside of themselves. Nothing that they can contribute. And what we see here through the way that Jesus describes a new birth is, is that it is both sovereign and supernatural. Sovereign and supernatural. Jesus describes it here. He says, that which is born of the flesh is of the flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is of the Spirit. New life is essentially supernatural life. I remember having a conversation with a guy a few years ago in Cornerstone. He used to come to Cornerstone, and, and it was the same conversation over and over again. And the conversation would go like this. I just want to be a better person. I just want to be a better person. And they came to church, and they came to church, and they came to church. But the conversation was, I just want to be a better person. Now hear me, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a better person, but that's not the gospel. The point of the gospel is not to make you a better person. Jesus, the Son of God, did not come to earth and, and live the perfect life that he lived, died the death that he died, rose again to, to glory so that you could be a better person. No, he came so that you would have supernatural life. That's why he came. Like I say, you're not good and Jesus came to make you better. You're dead and Jesus came to bring you to life. So supernatural, it happens outside of ourselves through the Spirit of God. It, it regenerates us. But it's also sovereign. Now what do I mean by that? Jesus says here, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and you do not know where it's going. Salvation is sovereign in the fact that God breathes on whoever he breathes on at whatever time he wants to breathe on to bring them to life. He uses the example of the wind here. Have you ever tried to brush up leaves in the wind? I find myself doing middle-aged stuff quite a bit at the moment. I look at Isaac and I think, He's playing the PlayStation or he's watching TV and I think he's, there's something in that song. Just hold on to that as long as you can. Because I find myself outside brushing up leaves in the wind, right? Now, how that usually goes is this. You brush up a pile of something, maybe leaves or dust or whatever it is. You brush a pile up and you think you have it sussed. And then the wind comes along and blows it away. And then you think to yourself, all right, now I've got this because I know what way the wind's coming. So what I'll do is I'll brush them all into this corner because I know the wind's here. It's coming this way. And if I get them into this corner, then I'll be able to lift them. And what does the wind do? Changes its mind and blows it away a different direction. And so you're left chasing your tail all the time. So it is with the Spirit of God. The Spirit breathes. Oh, he is unpredictable. He breathes on who he breathes on when he wants to breathe on them to bring new life. Now, there's something incredibly freeing about that for us. 
because you know that person in your life that you want to come to Jesus. You know that person in your life who you've been praying for, flat out, flat out. You really want them to come to Jesus. Well, do you know how much you can contribute to that? Nothing. And there is something incredibly freeing about that. It takes the weight off you. And I, that's what I wanted to do this morning. I wanted to take the weight off you. But, but what's our responsibility then if that's the case? If, if God's going to save you, God's going to save, do we have any responsibility in that? And we, we do. Yes, we do. We have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel through word and life, and we have a responsibility to pray. Let me, let me say this, and this hopefully will take a weight off you. You will save no one. Some of you, that freaks out. Some of you are like, oh, I need to. You don't. That's why Paul says, someone preaches the gospel, someone waters it, someone reaps, someone sows. It's all, it's God's process, not mine. Salvation is both supernatural and sovereign. That's the way. So we have the man, Nicodemus, wealth, education, power, prestige, position, all those things. We have the message, you must be born again, Nicodemus, if you're entering into the kingdom of God. We have the way that that happens, both supernaturally and sovereignly. But why? Why? Why does Nicodemus, the religious, wealthy, educated powerful, prestigious person even have a shot at eternal life? Why does next week, and I am excited about next week, you have no idea, why does the woman of the well, religiously bankrupt, destitute, probably abused, why does she have a shot at salvation? Why does she have a shot at, at eternal life? Why? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's why. That's why. Is it because Jesus looks at Nicodemus, the religious leader, and looks at the woman at the well and thinks, well, there's something inside you that's really, really good. You're a snowflake. No. nothing to do with them. It is because God so loved the world that they get a shot, that we get a shot. Let's just pause for a moment and think who Jesus was speaking to here. I've set him up quite well for this. Nicodemus, teacher of the Jews, teacher of Israel, the teacher of Israel. Now, Nicodemus has no issue with thinking that God loves the Israelites. But what has Jesus just said? For God so loved the world. Jesus has just blown every single category that Nicodemus has ever had out of the water. What, Jesus, you mean that Gentiles 
might be loved. You mean that Samaritans might be loved. You mean that Frees might be. You mean that slaves might be. You mean you mean that everyone, God loves everyone the same. Yep, that's what I'm saying. He blows every category that Nicodemus has clean out of the water. And interestingly enough, this word for God so loved the world is cosmos in the Greek. And it's the same word world that is used in Romans where where the world is groaning for the redemption of all things. So what you see is that Jesus is not only bringing a people to himself throughout all of history, what you see is that Jesus is moving all things to a point of redemption. He is redeeming all things. He is making all things new, which will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's when he says, for God so loved the world, not just humanity, the world, cosmos, everything. For God so loved the world, what? That he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus, his perfect, beautiful, lovely son. And here's the clause, that whosoever, the whosoever, I love it, the whosoever, Jew, Gentile, Greek, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, whoever it may be, the rich, the poor, the black, the white, whatever category of person you can think of, the whosoever believes in him, not just some uh, intellectual assent, but what this word believes means is like putting all your chips in, trusting in the work that he did, trusting in the person that he is, trusting in him alone for salvation. That's what this word believes means. So whosoever believes in him may have what? Eternal life. Life, which begins now, not when we die. No. Let me ask you a very simple question as we close. We saw the man. We saw the message, the way, and the why. Let me ask you a simple question as we close. Are you born again? Are you born again? That phrase in and of itself has come for some strange reason to be almost a, we don't really want to say it. You know, there's, there's your Presbyterians over here and there's your Pentecostals and then there's your Baptists and then there's Roman Catholics and the, there's, there's all different these classes of Christianity and then there's the born again crowd. They're the weird ones. They're the sandwich board and the placards people. We just avoid them. But here's what I want to say. There only is one crowd. There only is the born again crowd. Now let me ask you, are you born again? Are you born again? Let's pray. 
Father, I pray that your spirit would move. I pray that you would convict of sin, that you would convince of Jesus. Help us to see our need of you and the reality is that you're all we have and all we need. We love you. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.